Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. Every week we talk about how insane it can be to simply live in America. But this week, we're going to try to help you do something about it by welcoming journalist and author James Polis to the show. James's new book, The Art of Being Free, looks back at Alexis de Tocqueville's masterwork, Democracy in America, and pulls from its pages some wisdom about how each of us can confront the challenges of love, sex, loss, and this crazy-making, frustrating, wonderful nation that is both our predicament and birthright. Yeah, for a brief mad moment, we're going to try out this optimism thing we've heard so much about. Meanwhile, we've got politics as well. It seems like only eight years ago, the Affordable Care Act was galvanizing town hall protests all across the country, birthing new political movements. Well, it's happening again. Only this time, all the players are reversed, and President Obama's landmark health care bill's defenders are the ones getting into lawmakers' grills. We'll talk about this phenomenon. We're also going to spend a little time trying to get into the head of House Speaker Paul Ryan to figure out what GOP lawmakers might do next. Finally, after their first attempt at a Muslim travel ban ended in chaos and court decisions, the Trump administration is going back for a second bite of the apple. Plans are afoot to release a new executive order that promises the same policy effects, but with sufficient technical tweaks to avoid judicial rejection. We'll discuss that coming order, the stepped-up enforcement actions from ICE, and the possibility that Trump might be wavering on one of his immigration promises. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jonathan Cohn, Arthur Delaney, Elise Foley, and Lauren Weber. And here's what happened first. Hello to everyone in the land. Welcome again to another edition of So That Happened, a weekly digest of undigested angst and news about politics. My name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. And we have a very good show today, which we'll kick off first by introducing our friends. Zach Carter, he's our friend. Greetings, friends. How are you, Zach? Friendly. Okay, that's good to know. And a very special treat we have from the morning email, Lauren Weber. Hello, hello. Former Goldman Sachs, Lauren Weber. You know, I really don't love how we include this in every (laughs) podcast. I know. It's just important to establish these things. Yeah, well, you know, my time right. in banking. I did, fun. I'm a former government contractor. I'm, I'm, I'm no angel. I also am a former government contractor, so I got it all, you know? We're no angels. Yeah. Zach's an angel. Um, I used to play in <laughs> punk bands. Right, so Zach wins. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, we wanted to start today. We've talked a little bit about – well, we talked a lot about, you know, what Democrats have been doing 
in the uh, in the in the brief period of time we've been with a Trump administration, and we've seen a party kind of fumbling their way toward ecstasy, and a base that seems pretty riled up and and getting organized, and we've now seen uh, this sort of manifest itself at. Town halls. We're having. We're living through town hall version 2.0. We remember back in uh, 2009 as the uh, as the effort to uh, pass a healthcare reform bill ramped up. Uh, town halls became uh, jumping off places for, uh, uh, for 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 people to yell at their 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 uh, their elected officials. It was a it was a big uh, way in which the Tea Party first fomented itself. Now we see sort of history repeating itself, right? It seems that way to me, uh, and I think you know, in in large part, um, what we're what we're seeing in these protests. Obviously, I haven't been to every single one of these events or polled every single person there, but just the the, the impression that I'm getting from the things that people are saying at, at some of the more heated town halls. This is not uh, you know the radical left showing up. And, and voicing their desire to seize the means of production. What you have here are essentially rank-and-file Democrats and then a lot of rank-and-file Republicans who want to see some results, who are worried about Trump or angry about Trump. Uh, and it is, it is, for the most part, you know, a, a, a group of people who are very, very animated who aren't typically uh, people you see out there getting animated about politics. And to be clear, that's not what the White House believes. You know, Trump tweeted yesterday that he thinks it's a bunch of paid protesters. Which is itself sort of a funny concept, right? Like, like there are people who organize public events, who you know, who who try to get people out in public to protest things that are bad. Sometimes they're called community organizers. They can be, you know, housing advocates. They can be all sorts of things. But just because something is actually organized doesn't mean that the the anger and the expression that happens at an organized event doesn't count. You know, if if somebody drives you to the polling place so you can vote. Your vote still matters. You still got to vote your thing. When you show up and get and get and, and tell people that you're angry <laughs> at a protest, if somebody from Move On told you where to go, that doesn't mean you're not angry. I'm kind of intrigued by this whole idea that money taints political speech. Hmm. hmm. It's kind of, <laughs> what concept, Jason? I mean, what it's pretty weird. It's pretty weird because uh, you know I think that there's a bunch of adult billionaires who would disagree with the idea that money taints political speech. I believe there have been a few important Supreme Court rulings that have uh, strenuously advised against uh, discounting money as political speech. And what's funny to me is that I do not see a lot of people getting rich off of protesting at town halls, you know, I mean, I, it, it actually it actually begs a question: Why not pay people to protest? It's kind of crazy. I mean, it's like if you're good at something, you should be paid for your labor. So, I mean, why would why would it be bad? I, I mean, I understand that the, the idea here is that if you give enough people money, suddenly they become insincere about what they're talking about. And I would just like to point to. The entire lobbying industry. Well, this is this is. I mean, <laughs> this is once again the double-edged sword of authenticity in politics. I mean, this is this is what bedeviled Hillary Clinton throughout the entire campaign. This is what you know becomes an issue every now and again. It's it, are these protesters authentic? You know what what does that mean? Oh yeah, and it goes back to the. I, I think that anytime the media starts dictating what is and what isn't authentic, we, we get out over our skis because. How the fuck would we know what authenticity is? You know, I think that one of the interesting things about 
uh, you, you bringing up Hillary Clinton in the context of authenticity is that every time Hillary Clinton sh- showed her authentic self anywhere, the media was quick to bash her for it. Uh, and uh, I worry that sometimes people, just ordinary people who uh, show up to extract from powerful people uh, some part of that power could get tagged by the same brush. You – is it? I, w- I wanted to ask because I think you were alluding to something about this. Here is is obviously uh, we can't. We're not at every single one of these events, um, but is it is is it unfair to suggest that this is basically you know the democratic resistance, or are we just talking about people who are without power looking to powerful people to 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 extract some of that? I think themselves. it can be both. I think it can be both. I mean, I, I think, look, there's Tom Cotton's been a senator for several years now. He has not been getting excoriated by thousands of people uh, in his home state on a regular basis. Neither right? is Chaffetz. Right. Neither is Jason Chaffetz, you know, the, the congressman from, from Utah. These these are guys who are used to, you know, things going pretty well. They're from conservative districts, Marsha conservative Blackburn. states. Yeah. Right. Um, and they're getting an earful. Um, so I think a lot of that, I, th- I think there are two things going on. I think, one, the conservative movement is not really sure what it wants to do about the whole Trump thing. Really, there's a whole lot of different types of Republicans who aren't totally sold on, on Trump. Uh, and, and you also have a lot of people who are ordinary Republican voters who are comfortable now with, with Obamacare because they use it and they need it. Uh, and they are very nervous about what the Republican Party is going to do. If you listen to these testimonials, most of the testimonials that you're, you're hearing are, are related to the Affordable Care Act and people with and, really uh, serious – And we have to remember that 30 percent of the American public doesn't know the difference between Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act. Right. They think they're different things. Or, you know, I mean – Just saying. For a long time, you know, in, in different states – They are the same it, thing it, in case anyone's confused. Yeah. And they're branded. Like Kentucky, it's called Connect, right? Kentucky's version of Obamacare is called Connect. Sure, yeah. California uh, is called Covered California. Yeah. People in Kentucky love Connect. They hate Obamacare. It's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> but, but so, so there, there are there are groups of disgruntled conservatives. But I do think a lot of what's happening here is is just sort of the, the same anger that you saw uh, with the Tea Party in two thousand nine, which is it's just straight up partisanship to some extent. People who are accustomed to being in power didn't feel the need to go out and make a big fuss about things because they thought George W. Bush was going to take care of it for them. Democrats right now. I mean, you know, I've talked to a lot of these protesters. Um, you know, a lot of them are you know lawyers and and you know professional class people who who have been politically active and in the past at different times, but basically you know had some kids during the Obama era. You know, it just didn't seem like things were that like the emergency was that serious. Now with Trump being president, they're they're locked in again, and they're they're going out to airports, they're going out to town halls. It's become a it's become a more pressing, urgent issue for them. We've so we've you just mentioned how how Republicans are still kind of trying to figure out how to navigate a world in which uh, Trump is essentially now the cult of personality atop their party, uh, and you know we hear we hear tell of you know some teeth being ground in the dust when Trump goes out and speaks in public, um, but throughout it all they do seem pretty steadfast in their initial support for this presidency, um, but. The repeal and replace Obamacare part of this is going really sideways on them. Um, is right now the public uh, expression that's happening? Do you think that's adding to that? Do you think it's? Do you think it's? Do you think it's? Uh, do you think that being in a room full of people that they can perhaps discount as as liberals and discount as you know pro Obama people? Do you think it it 
gets them thinking about, oh, maybe we are in a trap. Maybe we should rethink this. Or do you think it steals them against uh, the idea in terms of like does it breed negative partisanship? I think it's hard to say. I mean, if you look at if you look at the never Trumpers, for instance, you know the the people like the National Review, the people like no fans of Obamacare there, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, these people were totally fine with saying repeal and replace Obamacare for for years, um, but it it seems to me sort of sort of slapdash which conservative figures are embracing Trump and which are which are, are staying against them. I mean, the National Review has tilted pretty hard in, into Trump. They they seem to be. They seem to be coming around on the idea that he's their Republican president. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is that, you know, we had Tea Party protests against Obamacare during its uh, pre-implementation period. It didn't stop Democrats from implementing Obamacare. What's Why would we think that a public protest uh, would influence Republicans to change their minds? I don't necessarily think that this is going to influence Republicans to change their minds. I think the stats about 20 million people losing health care is more problematic than these town hall protests. I think there's I think there's both things going on there. I think people, you know, it, it, it's been demonstrated that when you just flood congressional offices with calls, people freak out. They totally did that during the bailout in the bailout vote in 2008. Um, they did that during the government shutdown and Republicans totally backed off of their government shutdown thing in 2013. Um, I think the direct contact does have some sort of visceral human, you know, animal spirits thing that goes off inside people. And they're like, oh. There may not be enough people here who are calling in to, to matter in my district, but geez, they're really angry at me. I better do something. Um, I, you know, Paul Ryan doesn't care about any of this stuff. He's an ideologue who wants to cut taxes for rich people and take away health insurance from poor people. That's just part of his plan. He doesn't believe in government medicine, um, even if it's this you know weird market hybrid that Obamacare represents. So he's he wants to push through that agenda. Politics be damned. The other politicians. They're people who just want to get elected. I mean, taking away health insurance from 20 million people sounds like a great way to make sure that 20 million people don't vote for you. And exactly. most of those people are not Democrats. Most of those people live in red states and rural areas where they don't have a lot of money. And there's also some dissonance in between between Congress and Trump on this. I mean, Trump has gone out and said, oh, you know, maybe we'll have something at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. Then you have Ted Cruz being like, we're going to have something next month. You know, I mean, it's a bit... That's been, a, that's been an act they've been at for years though, For now. years. But yeah. still, the misinformation, I think, leads to people showing up to these town halls what because they just do? have no idea, as does most of the public, what actually is up and down. Yeah, we're, good point. We're also forgetting that Obamacare, like, it's now popular because <laughs> – because Obama's not in power anymore, and so people are pushing back against Trump and the Republicans for taking it away. Yeah. But there have been real problems with 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 Obamacare. Yeah, I mean, it's not a perfect system at all. Uh, and and what's I think one thing that's kind of disappointing about this is that the opportunities to fix it. I mean, the Republicans were never serious about that, but there is just going to be no way to deal with with the existing problems in the system because yeah. it's going to be keep or kill the, for for the entire presidency. Okay. That's, a, that's a nice little catchphrase there. Keep, keep or kill. Or kill. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I actually think that people should be in their congressperson's face on the regular basis. I just wanted to introduce a bit of skepticism and challenge the premise a little bit. Um, one, one of the interesting things that we've seen, of course, and this is, I guess, a redux, another redux of 2009, is that we're seeing uh, Congress critters not able to face the music. Oh, um, yes. We're seeing people having uh, phone town halls instead. Yeah, of- a notable exception to this is uh, Michigan Representative Justin Amash, who uh, seems to actually want to face his constituents. Amash? 
Amash, sorry, I was. <laughs> I, I was wondering, sorry, but I, that was, I, didn't, I wasn't quite sure on that one. I there. really apologize for that. I, I, I don't know why I said that. Amash, uh, who seems to really relish having these, uh, having these conversations with his constituents, even when they get heated. He good for he, him. He stands Man. and he faces it. And he was talking about after his last town hall event, where he got into some arguments, and people didn't always agree with him. He was talking afterwards, is like we've got to go longer. We got to have a bigger venue, invite more people. Uh, it's it's a markedly different attitude from what we've seen in a lot of these cases, where, like you mentioned, people will do it over the telephone, or they won't have town halls. The number of town halls all. has dropped off dramatically in the past, like month. I mean, are we seeing? Are we? Are we seeing? Uh, you know, who's really got the profile and courage up on Capitol? I don't usually extend that. Well, idea. also, when is he up for re-election? Every two years. Yeah, every no, two years. Two years. Yeah, He's yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then good for him. I mean, that's. He he likes combat though. I mean I mean he he's unpopular on Capitol Hill among Republicans because he he, he will just take it to them. Uh, you know he's a pretty hardline libertarian. Doesn't believe in a lot of things that the Republican Party has voted for and supported over the last twenty years. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care that that it's you know that the party wants to do this. He says no, this is bad, and I'm going to vote for it. Um, I think you know his political philosophy is a little a little convoluted, but you can't say the guy is not principled. Um, you know, this is going to be a really, a, a really weird couple of years here. I mean, most politicians are are total cowards. They they care about getting elected more than they care about anything else, uh, and there are a few who care about doing the right thing more than they care about getting elected, but not many. It's just not. It's just not a very. Uh, you know, having having a spine is is not is not common on Capitol Hill. Well, and I mean, you saw that even today with the or yesterday with the rescinding of the transgender rule that Betsy. Uh, Devoy, DeVos, I, right. I can never remember. Is it French? I don't know. DeVos. I mean, you read that New York Times piece where she basically had the option to resign or sign the bill saying, that's fine, we'll take away transgender protections and sign the bill. Yeah. She, she, the order. She, she, Sorry. Basically, the, the session's ban and wing of the White House told her, you know, it's, it's your job or or sign this thing. And I was stunned to be confronted with the idea that Betsy DeVos believed in something. That was like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> World turned tilted on its axis a little bit. Yeah, and, and, be, and yeah. it was something that involved just being nice to people who are different from you too, which yeah. you know, didn't didn't seem to be like something that was really on display in her confirmation hearing. Uh, but there was. It's okay. She's a moral moment. coward, so never mind. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, at any rate, the, I think this is going to become a, a thing. It's going to be. Uh, gosh, it's 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 a. Uh, it's it's uh it's February. The town halls in 2009 didn't really get ramped up to the summer recesses. Well, Jason, it's a it's a new era we're in. Now. It's lit, man. It's just everything's on fire. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but Donald Trump is president. <laughs> just everything is burning. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for the reminder. All right, uh, Lauren, thanks for being with thanks us. Thanks for having and Zach, me. Zach, thanks you for being with us. Uh, we have a really really fun show today. Uh, James Polis is here to talk about his book, The Art of Being Free. You will hear this interview, and you will wonder why so many campus conservatives decided to make Milo Yiannopoulos famous instead of James. Give your money to James. He's great. Uh, We have a good show. Stick around. We'll be right back. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And welcome back. We're here with Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. And on the phone with us, a really good friend of ours. You have read his work at The Week and at The Federalist, but I'm pretty sure the most important job of his life was being a producer, presenter, devil on our shoulder at HuffPost Live, which has just recently been made popular by Saturday Night Live. Uh, please, please welcome our friend James Polis. Hello, gentlemen. How are you doing, sir? It's been a while. This is like a reunion here. This is. Uh, it's a it's a season for reunions, for reaching back out to those who you care about uh, in these perilous, turbulent times. These are perilous and turbulent times. And one of the great things about having you on the show right now is that you have written a book about how to sort of face these perilous and turbulent and crazy-making times by going back to Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote Democracy in America so many, 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 many years ago. Uh, you have taken this kind of like very kind of sideways approach to him. It's a little bit of history, philosophy, a little bit of like hanging on to the electrodes with both hands and cheering about it. Tell us, why did you write this book? What gave you this inspirato? Well, you know, I, I knew that American life was crazy and I knew from Tocqueville that it, it always has been in a way. Uh, I was halfway through writing the book and uh, this guy named Donald Trump started to have some success in the Republican primary season. Uh, so Heard of that guy. I lost a month of book writing time just trying to sort of figure out uh, how to digest – uh, the uh, the dawning Trumpocracy into the book, uh, and I'll leave that to the reader to discover. Uh, it, it worked out to my satisfaction, uh, but the the long and short of it is, um, I knew uh, from Tocqueville that his his warnings, but also his encouragements about the inherently crazy character of American life, 
uh, were going to be more important than ever, uh, not just to the conservatives and the libertarians, you know, my, my dear friends who are like primed to love Tocqueville all over again. Uh, but for everyone else too, uh, Tocqueville, the, the real Tocqueville in there in Democracy in America is not a political scientist. Uh, he's not someone who you can trot out to sort of justify your, your budget plan or whatever. Uh, he was uh, a guy who, who traveled young and wrote Democracy in America young and he was a melancholy genius who died young uh, and he lived a life of, of experience and vulnerability. Uh, in in a way that I think we can all uh, recognize uh, when we read the book and, and when we read my book. Uh, I realized that I needed to, to present that part of myself in the same way in order to make it clear that this is a book for anyone, for anyone who finds themselves topsy-turvy in these times and and wants to recognize the good in, in being human, warts and all. So – so, so you you mentioned there. I mean, Tocqueville is is you know, kind of beloved in, in sort of conservative or center right circles, um, and and then people to the to the left sort of you know fuss about him in different ways. I include myself in that in that community of people who are fussy about Tocqueville. But what what drew you to him? What 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 are the ideas there that you think explain something useful for for people today? Uh, Tocqueville. There's so many ways to answer the question, but I think the most important one is probably that. In spite of the fact that Tocqueville was very worried about how things could go wrong for America, he still thought that our saving grace was that we were able to learn from our mistakes uh, and adapt to them. Uh, and, and it gave us a kind of fortitude or resilience uh, that he found lacking elsewhere in the world. Uh, you know. This is this is the thing. So I, yeah, I I think that's in there, and I agree. And the thing that's always bugged me about Tocqueville is that I feel like we often don't like like it's what forty years after the book's written, we have a civil war. We now have Trump. Like how do you how do you find that sort of ideal version of of you know an America that I think even lefties could say is like a good way to be? Like how do you get there from a, a time of darkness like like we're living in right now? Well, I think you you look at what persists. Um, you know, it's it's. It is frustrating that right now the people who are getting the most attention are those who seem most dedicated to pursuing attention for its own sake. Uh, you know, I, as a matter of, of sort of personal rectitude and and basic respect for people, I, I try not to dedicate my life to uh, to weaponizing my identity and accumulating as many haters as I can and and turning those haters into money. Uh, I think there's something. <laughs> I think there's something fundamentally rotten morally with uh, a society that views freedom as uh, how many haters you can afford. Uh, that is that is bothersome for sure. Uh, you talking about anybody in particular there? <laughs> I can think of a few. <laughs> I, I think we can all think of more than a few. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, nevertheless, if you look at, at what, has, what has persisted throughout American history despite times that frankly were a hell of a lot worse than these – more confusing, That's true. more sort of bloodier, more unjust. Uh, what persisted, uh, you know, friendship, uh, not the, the BFF kind, not the fake Facebook friend kind, uh, but genuine face-to-face -face friendship and, and shared love and the ability to pull yourself out of yourself and into that risky, vulnerable space where, uh, where freedom, I think, can be found and where the patterns that defeat us can at least for a little while be broken.
there's something very nice about reading your book alongside, you know, so many conversations I've been having with my dad lately about politics. And one of the things that he's stressed with me is to like disabuse yourself of the notion that right now you're living through a unique period in American history. Um, one of the things I loved about what your book did is it animated Tocqueville in a way that it kind of felt, it kind of felt like this predicament that America is in is also sort of its birthright. And you take us through really important archetypes of living, death, love, sex. Uh, when you wrote this book, tell me what kind of, how did you imagine readers would interact with it? Well, I hope that they would see themselves in it. Uh, you know, my, my road has been a strange one uh, through, you know, law school and grad school and uh, writing a novel and having the novel ruined by 9-11 and uh, being engaged and unengaged and married and divorced. And, you know, it's been a weird road. Uh, but the commonalities uh, in the way that that humans blunder through this world. I mean, Tocqueville said that the short space of 60 years can't capture the longings of our hearts, no matter how much money we have or how many, you know, uh, people sort of retweet our tweets or uh, how um, alone we feel or or not. Um, those that experience of of restlessness and melancholy and yearning that goes beyond what we know is the scope of our lives. These things are are baked in, and I, I figured out that the only way I could I could immerse people in the material that Tocqueville was presenting uh, and also do it in a way that reflected the the strangeness and the the pain uh, but also the promise of joy in our times was to was to bear my own soul um, that's Tocqueville said that the you know Americans really only want to read about themselves uh, the the kind of poly, poly polytheistic gods of the old days or you know nature and and uh, hippie togetherness you know those are kind of fleetingly interesting topics but they don't really grab us uh, and they don't show us what it is that we think that we need to hear in order to feel like we're not just sort of the most insignificant interchangeable specks in the world. Well, I mean, given that we are the most insignificant, interchangeable specs in the world, that is a tough sell. But I, I want to I ask you this about because Tocqueville is something that everybody reads, you know, when when they're in high school or college at, at, on some level, and it, it, there's this sort of generalized understanding of this guy as an important thinker. W was there anything that jumped out at you while you were doing the research for this book that made you think, hey? That my understanding of this guy was wrong. There's something something different about this guy that that I need to know that the rest of the world needs to know. You know, Tocqueville was a a sort of sad ex-Catholic, but he still thought with Catholic categories of thought. His patterns of thinking were richly informed by the likes of guys like Blaise Pascal. And so the the you know the conservative Tocqueville, quote unquote, is a guy who's very much about traditional morality and how, you know, you need to have like good religious sturdy folk in order for civic society to work and all that. And the more that I dug mm -hmm. into what Tocqueville really had to say about religion, the more complicated it got in some ways, but the simpler in others. You know, he said that the genius of Christianity was that it only gave people a couple very general precepts, love God and love your neighbor, that even something as, as simple and basic as those two precepts of faith uh, enabled people to, to orient themselves in a world where, you know, if you lacked that kind of anchor, nothing would make sense to you and you would feel swept away by everything. But if you did have that anchor, then you could range freely across the whole field of human endeavor and science and art and technology and uh, history, culture. Tocqueville feared that religions 
that purported to dig too deep into the details of everyday life would cut against the grain of life in a democratic age uh, and that it would drive people even crazier than, than we Americans are. So there's more than meets the eye to Tocqueville on religion and I think he holds out a, a promise of reconciling ourselves to our crazy world. Uh, even with forms of religion that are not uh, as as traditional as the traditionalists might think, uh, that that struck me as very important. I think that's a really great point because I think it, for a lot of people in on the sort of secular left over the last you know twenty or thirty years, they've they've become frightened of religion in this way because I think to some extent they think that it means this very detailed sort of set of of you know life guides that includes a bunch of stuff that they don't necessarily agree with, but. It, it has made it very difficult for people who have very deeply felt moral convictions to communicate those convictions to other people because they've lost this ability to understand religion as a more sort of basic fundamental set of ideas uh, rather than a guide to every single decision you make in, in your life. I think it's been very problematic for the Democratic Party, certainly, but I think it's also been destructive to, to the way we just get along with each other in, in civil society. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And you know, for for my friends on the left, if you guys want to, you know, if you if you want to take a bat to uh, to the the sort of new alt right folks that you're most afraid of, you have to find a way to reconnect with that deeper spiritual reality that that so many human beings live in. Uh, it's hard because many people today um, either inherit. Uh, some sort of uh, religious code uh, and, and haven't really lived hard enough to come to it on their own. Uh, and so much of, of life um, needs to be rooted in experience in order for it to actually to, to keep a grip on us amid everything that's so much in flux. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is uh, more or less a contemporary of Tocqueville, said experience is the hands and feet of every enterprise, and that goes for religion too. So, you know, we it's hard it's a hard counsel to say to people, you know, you just need to go get your ass kicked more. You know, come back to me when you've hurt, when you've been broke, when you've had your heart broken. <laughs> you know, then we can talk. Especially in this particular moment. But <laughs> I what it's really hard it's really hard for readers out there for me to describe James's book to people because it's not like it has a plot arc. It's not like it's not like it even so much begins with the thesis and kind of expounds on it. It's more of like kind of a ruminative journey. And, you know, we're talking about kind of what gets lost when you sort of step away from a religion. One of the big things that gets lost is just like taking the time to reflect and ruminate about things that are bigger than you. Uh, what I would say is I'd recommend James's book to anyone who wants to like take up that task. If you if you're not ready to maybe delve into reading Saint Augustine every season, you know, <laughs> uh, this is a, a really good book to start. I don't know if you intended it to be read like that, but I could see people coming back to this book time and time again if they're feeling bad, if there's if there's something you know if they're facing loss. Uh, you have stuff to say about like all facets, all seasons of life, and I think also would be people would be very cheered and. And encouraged by the journey you take in this book, Did, is that does that sort of describe maybe what you're looking for? Not like a, a disposable read, but something people come keep coming back to. You know that 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 is exactly what I hope to achieve, and I'm honestly uh, I'm honestly quite touched that uh, that 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 happened for you, and that you think it could happen. Uh, to others, you know, so I've I've told a couple of my friends I, I wanted to write a book that would last at least as long as a building. And given how many just terribly fucking ugly buildings there are in the world, that seemed like, 
not a, not a super arrogant thing to say, uh, but I wanted it to sort of be a building too. You know, I wanted it to be a, a refuge where you could come and be quiet and have you know a, a space that was safe, not for its own sake, but that you could then leave that space and go back into the world prepared to take on risks that are worthy of of our human life force, which is just you know which is in danger of being squandered and pissed away every minute of every day. Uh, we we can't live the lives of superheroes, but we don't need to. It's good to be human. It's good enough to be human. And amid the insanity of life when so much of political argument seems to be either uh, p- people acting like prosecuting attorneys or uh, you, you just just resorting to mockery as a form of argumentation, uh, it's so difficult to find the opportunity to rest with something and to live with something and, and to speak to yourself and to your friends and, and, and with, with people who are long dead as if, as if they were intimates. And the things that occur in, in, in the space where you have intimate conversation, where people are able to, to bear themselves to each other, uh, not for the sake of just having you know sex and then never speaking to them again, but in a more important way than that. Uh, I, I think that's going to save us in a way that politics isn't going to save us. Um, our, our problems aren't, aren't illnesses to be cured or, or um, equations to be solved. Uh, they're things that we have to live with and learn to live with well. Well, James, I'm really glad we got to you before uh, Chris Tippett and On Being at NPR. Uh, this has been really awesome. The book is super thoughtful and really, really interesting. It's and, a super fun book to read, and, too. And also, yeah, also just actually fun to read. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. Right, that was James Polis. His book is called The Art of Being Free. You should get it. It's really quite fun and good. Welcome back, and we're here now to talk about one of our uh, one of the you know most important people in Washington D.C. Beltway Egghead, Paul Ryan, Wisconsin Representative, Speaker of the House, Widow's Peak that you can cut brie with, Paul Ryan, uh, and joining us to talk about this, we got Arthur Delaney, hi, right here, and uh, and fellow P90X enthusiast uh, uh, Jonathan Cohn. I am here. Yes. Now, Jonathan, you have written a piece for us in which you you've you've perfectly distilled Paul Ryan. You've put Paul Ryan into your your bloggy autoclave and have created and discovered the the essence of Paul Ryan, the 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 the, the, the nucleus at the center of all things Paul Ryan. Congratulations. Let's give him a round of applause for that. Yeah. Thank Clap. you. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Clap. You were the Hadron Particle Accelerator of Paul Ryan. So tell us, what did, what did, you, what did you discover about Paul Ryan? Well, I think in fairness, we, we need to share credit with the speaker, right? Because the article I wrote was all about a tweet that he wrote. So we're it was always all, he, to share credit. Yeah. So, I mean, really, he distilled his own essence. I just observed Noticed and interpreted it. it. But he, had, um, you know, he, had, he was tweeting about the Affordable Care Act which, as you know, is one of his favorite subjects. And he made the point that we need to repeal the law because the law had crushed freedom. And taking the law away, repealing it, 
and replacing it with whatever the Republicans cook up. Freedom, I guess. Increase freedom. It's freedom, you know, like in the Mel Gibson, you know, Braveheart. Freedom. So that's that's what it's all about. Okay. Well, he said freedom. The essence of freedom is being able to buy whatever health insurance you want and not to have Washington tell you. That's right. Okay. 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 But but the Affordable Care Act created a marketplace where people could buy the insurance they wanted. Right, right. So, I, so it, I'm skeptical about how people have been enslaved by this. Right. So if you look at the world the way Paul Ryan does and ran, you know, people in that part of the universe, they say, aha, you know, we, you know, Obamacare, it applied all these rules to insurance. And when the government applies rules, that crushes freedom. So, and, and look, and it, it, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so, so, so first of all, let's say that, you know, we all, freedom's a good thing. We all are in favor of freedom. And number two, yes. it is absolutely true that the Affordable Care Act put a lot of new rules on health insurance, right? So, I mean, you know, nowadays insurers used to be free to you know, uh, deny coverage to people with pre-existing conditions. They can't do that anymore. Uh, insurers used to be able to sell policies that were like had huge gaps, right? They didn't cover mental health or they didn't cover a lot of rehabilitative services or maternity. And now they can't do that anymore. And they used to be able to charge a lot more to people who were older or sicker. And now they really can't or they're limited in what they can do. And it used to be if you didn't want to buy health insurance and you could, you you had a policy available, you know, you were that was that was fine. That was your choice. Now it's still your choice, but the government will make you pay a penalty, right? That's the individual mandate. So these are new rules. The government has applied rules, the, but you know, I I, I think when most people think about freedom. Freedom, you know, freedom is also the freedom to get a health insurance policy when you need it. It's the freedom to be able to get health care to, to 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 get it without going bankrupt. Um, and of course, you know, as you were saying, I mean, you think about it in the old days. Right. I mean, yes, everybody was free to get a health insurance policy, whatever they wanted. But right. if you were poor, you know, if you and, and or even if you were middle class and you were trying to buy a policy and you probably couldn't afford a, a comprehensive one. It was too expensive. And if you had a pre-existing condition, well, good luck to you, because in most states, you know, uh, the insurance company could say no. And so you really were not free to get a health insurance policy. I guess in those circumstances, you were free to pay out the nose for uh, emergency care at hospitals and whatnot. Absolutely. You were free to go bankrupt from your medical bills. You were free not to get the health care that your doctor prescribed. Free to die from things that are get easily treated. Yes. So in other words, Paul Ryan revealed through this message on Twitter yes, that he ignores a type of economic freedom uh, that's necessary and that without money, you re- there's a lot of things you don't have the freedom to do. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, uh, with health care, I mean, again, uh, this is to, to play a twist on something Bernie Sanders said a couple of weeks ago in that debate with Ted Cruz. I mean, you know, I, I'm free to buy a yacht, right? right. You know, I, can, I, I can retire at the age of 50 if I want. I'm free to eat all my meals at French Laundry if you I know, prefer. Absolutely. I don't have the money to do it. It's not something I can actually – You're you know, free to yeah. eat cake. That's right. Now, with health care, there is the added complication that – because of this issue with the pre-existing conditions, because of the way health insurance works, even if you have the money, sometimes you can't get the coverage you need. Um, and in fact, this is a classic case. I mean, if we want to not to get too, you know, in the weeds here about economics, but this is a classic case of a market that does not work without regulation. It really doesn't. 
And, you know, we see that in other markets, you know, in the same way, sometimes you need to regulate them or you need to put in rules so there can actually be decent competition. I mean, one of the funny things is, and I didn't actually write about this, but this is an important point, is that in the old days, there wasn't a lot of real competition for people buying health insurance. You know, people didn't understand the policies they were buying. Insurers could pick and choose who to cover. You know, nowadays, particularly where the program is working well, if you go to a state like California, you have a market now where there's, you know, there's some rules about basic guidelines of what all the policies have to look like. And so people can really kind of, they can really shop for the first time. They can say, oh, you know, I like this policy because it gives me certain services that I value. This one here seems to be cheaper and it doesn't seem to offer less, so maybe it's more efficient. You actually have real competition, which is, you know, what a lot of conservatives say they want. But if it weren't for the rules of Obamacare, you wouldn't have those competition. You wouldn't have that shopping. So we're going to get rid of Obamacare, right? Or are we? So um, I'm going to – my standard disclaimer here, which is number one, I don't do predictions. Come on. Man. Number two, I was around in 2009 and 2010. <laughs> I covered that. That Affordable Care Act was declared <laughs> dead so many times. We actually yeah. have a regulation against that disclaimer. So just right. stop so, it. Just so, okay. make some predictions. So I will say that the odds have shifted dramatically since the election. You know, uh, whereas I, I think after the election, it sort of looked like the odds on they were going to repeal it and replace it. Um, it looks less and less likely. We just had John Boehner. I don't know if you saw this. Yeah, yeah, John Boehner. This week, what did he say? He said this isn't going to happen. He said they're going to come up with something that looks a lot like the Affordable Care Act because it's just too hard to dislodge. And it is. I mean, look, they have a very thin margin in the Senate. You yeah. know, and you have a, we have a number. We have at least a dozen Republican senators now expressing serious reservations about components of this. You got governors who don't want to give up the money. You have governors who don't want to. And, and the big problem is, you know, the rhetoric that the Republicans have had all time. They have just bashed and bashed the Affordable Care Act for for in many cases for things that it doesn't. You know, the deductibles are too high. You know, there aren't enough plan choices. It's too expensive. Well, a lot of that's real. Some of it's not real. But their plans do not make these problems better. I mean, basically, they you know they deregulate, they take money out of the system, and you end up with either more people without health coverage, or the people who have health coverage have even higher out-of-pocket costs. Yeah, this is not what people want. It's funny we we're still really circling around what David Frum pointed out was the original sin of hostility towards this was that Republicans should have gotten skin in the game and worked with Democrats to come up with something that was palatable that that they could all take credit for. Yeah. That actually had some of their vision as part of it. Instead, they abandoned the uh, they abandoned the task, except for you know, uh, I, I guess uh, now deceased Senator Bennett, uh, and 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 became purely sort of like a lycanthropic opposition to this bill. And now they have to unwind it because of the promises they made to the constituents. They're finding it deeply, deeply difficult to do so. They're, yeah, they're not gonna. Just like I said after the election, they're not gonna because they're chicken. They they're afraid to follow through on their promise of freedom because doing so would take away insurance for twenty million people who would then be mad. I don't know if you guys have ever talked to Canadians about their health. I'm seeing a lot of nods. So we've talked to Canadians I, about their health care. Now they, I don't they, know what that is. The Canadian healthcare system is a government run single payer system. It has a lot more rules governing it. And I remember being in Toronto. When you're an American traveling in Canada, Canadians want to talk about politics all the time. They mostly want to talk about guns and health care. I was at the St. Lawrence Market talking to a guy. There's a guy working at a food kiosk selling mustard. And uh, he was talking about how, you know, his healthcare system allowed he, – he, he got some kind of like this degenerative, degenerative disease, like one of those flesh-eating 
bacteria situations, hospitalized him, laid him up at home. He said that you know all that stuff, his costs were covered. He actually got home health care visits from, from registered nurses to help him convalesce and recover. He's back at work happier than ever. Selling and, mustard. And he, selling mustard, you know, it was and, and, and striking up fun conversations with people on the market. Uh, and he was he asked me, he asked me, what is the argument against that? And I said, Well, uh, if and I said, if Paul Ryan was here talking to you about what you endured, he'd say, So you're alive, you're back at work. Uh, you're healthy again. You're happy again, but you're not free. Hot dog. And the guy just had no response to that. He thought it was just the craziest argument he'd ever heard. He was yeah. like, uh, my livelihood, I'm back at work. Yeah. I'm doing what I want. How is this not freedom? Yeah, I don't get it. Because the government made you. The right. government made you get well. Yeah, I, I can tell you I've actually spent a lot of time researching systems abroad. So I, I've, I've talked to people in France. I've talked to people in the Netherlands, in England. I've spoken you know, on the phone stuff with people from Sweden, right? You know, socialist Sweden, right? Pray for Sweden. And I pray, pray for Sweden. Right, right. I yes, shouldn't bring up Sweden. They've, been, they've endured so much. So I hate to use them as a political prop at this difficult so time. But um, – and they all say the same thing. And, and they look – I, I would have these conversations. They'd ask me what healthcare in the United States was like and I'd explain, well, it depends on what kind of insurance you have, if you have insurance. I mean this was pre-Obamacare but even now, you know, whatever. And, 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 and they would just give you this look like people tolerate that? I mean they, they could not understand how we could live with that kind of system but, that was so arbitrary and so – you know, and left so many people out. And, and, and what you're describing about the freedom there, I, I think – that you know, it's it, this is a, a conception of freedom. It's Roosevelt's, right? It's the four freedoms, right? I mean, this right. you know, freedom from want, freedom from fear, and um, you know, and that's the conflict. I mean, if you're Paul Ryan, by definition, if the government is improving, you know, imposing rules, then you've lost freedom. And I think a lot of us think, well, let's look at the sum total, you know, and if somebody's able to work. You know, if they don't they're have to walk around in death. pain, they're not going to – that's freedom too. I mean we don't really have the freedom to die because the hospital will just stitch you up anyway. They will, although they'll so come out even they're, Yeah, they're not even going to get rid of that. It's, it's just a crappier way of socializing I the feel, costs. I feel – and this is something we talked about with Jeff Young on, on numerous occasions. But I feel like what's really being articulated by Paul Ryan is that – if you led a good and moral life, you'll be able, you sh- you'll be able to afford insurance. And then if you can't afford insurance, it's because of the choices you've made, and now you must live with the consequences. I, I think feel that's the nutshell. I I, th- I mean, look, I hate to get into people's brains. I think if you go on the right, you know, overall, I think you see that thread. There are definitely people who buy into that, and I think that's what they think. I mean, I think you're right. I think there's a sense of virtue here. If you have health insurance, you know, you must be virtuous, and if you can't pay your bills, you must not. The problem is. <laughs> If you actually go out in the world, you find all kinds of people who, through no fault of their own, are in trouble with health care. And you know what? A lot of them voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. A lot of them are Republicans. And this is – you know, to get back to your question whether this will happen or not, the problem Republicans – one of the big problems is it's not you – know, this isn't just a matter of passing a law that's likely to harm Democrats. A lot of Republicans who depend on that law for their health insurance and it's going to go away – if the Republicans repeal it, whether or not they replace it. And so that's a big problem. Right. All right. Well, thank you. This has been an excellent conversation. I'm sure we're going to have many more as we watch uh, the GOP attempt to do something about health care. I still kind of think maybe there's going to be 
one or two marginal tweaks. They call it Trump care. They get to take credit for it because I still to this day believe that most of what drives people on Congress to do the things they do is just whether they get to take credit for something because <laughs> they're all shallow as shit. Anyway, Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Arthur, thanks for being with us. Pray for Sweden if you're on your own when all the pretty birds have flown. Honey, I'm still free. Take a chance on me. Love you, Sweden. We'll be right back. Hello, So That Happened listeners. I want to just take a moment to ask you to do a few small favors. First, if you like the show and want to help more people find it, go over to iTunes and just leave us a review. Every review we get bumps the show a little bit higher in the podcast charts. It does make a difference, and it's going to help us build this community. Second, are there issues you'd like us to address? People you think we should talk to. You should drop us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We really do appreciate your suggestions, and we often follow up on stories, and we just like hearing feedback and criticism. So we'd love to hear from you specifically, because you're the people that matter the most to us. Now, back to the show. And we're back, and there are so many things happening in the world of immigration and the Trump administration. And when we have these frustrations, we turn to our pal, Elise Foley, to explain them to us. Elise, welcome. Thank you. And Arthur's here, too. Happy to be here. Yes. I'm ha- explanation. I'm happy to both. I'm sorry that I established that as a thing. Sorry, I was just off the top of my head. I didn't mean <laughs> to start rhyming. Anyway. Immigration explanation. Yeah, exactly. An immigration explanation. Who is welcome in our nation? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have a lot of fascination. Okay, stop. Stop. Um, Elise, obviously, when we last had you on, we were talking about an executive order uh, that the Trump administration issued that went sideways and backwards really quick. Uh, we've now heard that they have tweaked the order uh i don't really understand how they've tweaked the order because they also say the order would be fundamentally the same can you explain what it was that uh white house aide and nightmare tinder date Stephen miller was talking about (laughs) um so yeah i i mean right now we still haven't seen the new executive order so i don't know exactly what will be in it, but basically he was saying that it'll still have the same ultimate goal slash same ultimate result of, you know, keeping Americans safe and keeping out terrorists. So what that actually will entail is kind of to be determined. But he he made it sound like it'll just be these minor tweaks and technical fundamentally, in nature. Yeah, it'll still be, you know, about keeping people out of the country. Well, well first of all, the order they initially released that was sloppily written got stopped by courts. Yes. Partly because it wrongly uh, caused all this trouble for people with legitimate visas. Right, yeah. And so green card holders. So it initially applies to people with legal – or uh, with people with green cards and then that was something that was a problem in the courts. So in theory, you know, it could just be the exact same executive order and be like also – 
it, this does not apply to lawful permanent residents. That, for, that could be one way to do it differently. But for people who don't like constitutional crises, it, it initially sounded like good news that they, okay, we're just going to do a new order. We're going to obey the court and tailor the new order to what the court said is okay. It's like, okay, you know, that's, that's <laughs> really reasonable. You're like, Level of concern for constitutional crises versus yeah, it, like it, refugees. Yeah, it went down a notch. Yeah, upset. I feel, but I feel we're still t- kind of talking past this because the, the, the ACLU received this news from Miller, and they st- still have indicated they're kind of jonesing for a fight in court over this. Um, aren't aren't isn't the Obama? Uh, oh, I said the Obama administration. Sorry, isn't the Trump administration simply trying to just? ban the same people that they deem to be mud people from coming to the United States uh, and they're just trying to find a technical way around courts that explicitly say you can't have a religious test on on immigration or enter into the entry into the country yeah I mean it's the same like I said we haven't seen it but it's uh, sounds like it will be the same basic gist, except maybe taking out a few of the provisions that got them in trouble. But yeah, I mean, if your objection to this is based on um, or the court's objections are based on things like uh, the religious aspect, I don't think that it's all of a sudden not going to involve countries that are Muslim majority. Um, It's I I don't imagine that it's all of a sudden going to be um, more welcoming of refugees or anything like that. I mean, it's going to have a lot of the same things that people objected to in the first place and then maybe take out some of the other things that were objected to. I think without a doubt, um, ACLU basically already said it, but uh, this is going to have a bunch of court challenges as well. This is not this is not going to fix everything um, and make their legal problems go away. I kind of feel like the whole keeping people with green cards from coming back into the country was a feature, not a bug of the original order. But Moving moving from that, uh, this has also been a week in which uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement have ramped up their activity all across the country. Uh, and it's caused a lot of consternation among uh, the immigrant community and the people who support the immigrant community. Uh, but what we're seeing – is this actually something somewhat abnormal? Uh, the Obama administration, now I'm going to use the Obama administration correctly, uh, rightly got dinged by uh, the immigrant community and, and their affiliated allies for uh, setting new standards of deportations. So ICE is out there deporting people. What's changed about the activity now versus the activity we've been living with for the past eight years? Well, so the main thing is just what the priorities are for ICE. So ICE, you know, none of the people ICE is picking up now are people who were, you know, completely safe from deportation before. If you're in the country and you don't have authorization under Obama, you could be deported. Under Trump, you could be deported, you know, under Obama. Plenty of people who, um, you know, might have been in situations that a lot of people would consider very sympathetic were still deported. Uh, but there were these guidelines, especially in the final two years of his administration, that said that there were certain people who were priorities and there were certain people who weren't. And if you encounter somebody who is considered low priority, you basically you just let them go and you let them go about their lives. That's something that made a lot of ICE officers very angry because they felt that they should be the ones that would get to decide that, not you know people from on high saying you can't you know, hold this person that you think that you should hold. 
Um, and Trump said that he was going to take the handcuffs off of ICE and uh, in Border Patrol. And basically what happened in this executive order and this memo is that they did. They said that actually here are the priorities. And if you kind of read through it, you might think, OK, uh, so these are the same priorities. They want to prioritize criminals, but they want to define criminals very, very broadly um, and define the priority as somebody who, you know, any undocumented person could be a priority. Um, they also want to speed up uh, the deportations, get more people in these expedited proceedings where they don't, you know, maybe even need to be in court. So they get hardly any chance at all to argue their case. Some people maybe would say that they shouldn't be deported because they're fearful of returning to their country, things like that, that, you know, it's harder to do with when you're not physically there. It's possible to do when you're not there. It's harder to do without an attorney. So there are definitely changes. The law is the same, but there's changes in the way that um, it's being instructed to be implemented. So people might be seeing news stories now where it shows an ICE raid at like a restaurant and people are being rounded up and arrested. But that doesn't necessarily reflect a, a, a sea change in enforcement. Like that stuff was still going on. Yeah, not not um, huge raids quite so much, and I I don't know that there have been raids so much like that even now in terms of like going to a restaurant and asking everybody for their ID. I think it's important to you know be a little bit careful with a lot of those things because there have been a lot of rumors and um, people right. be, being very scared and you know maybe in some cases not not in a way that's necessary, but. They did uh, in these recent um, deportation raids kind of go door to door in some cases reportedly, and they picked up people who they were not intending to pick up. That's something that happened in the past, but uh, immigration rights advocates say that and lawyers say that it did not happen in the past to the same frequency, at least under Obama, at least in the final years. So, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that we're going to see changes, but also People should know that, I mean, it's not – deportations have never stopped. There's never been, like, a complete safety from deportations for anybody. So, you know, ICE ice is doing ICE's job. I think people do actually need to know that because yeah. now that it's a symbol of things changing, people might not have realized what it was like in the first place, especially when there's mass protests that are uh, partly addressing this exact issue. There's been some tension on Capitol Hill over this issue too. Uh, can you explain what happened uh, when uh, Latino lawmakers attempted to uh, meet with people from Immigration and Customs Enforcement about this? Because this story bewilders me. It seems so unnecessary uh, to to exclude them. Yeah, from these conversations. <laughs> it's very. It's just like an own it's goal. It's very strange. Um, so a lot of them requested uh, that they have a meeting with the director of ICE. Um, and along with the Latino lawmakers, some people who are from districts that were heavily affected in these um, recent raids. Um, and they were told that they could have a meeting. The meeting was scheduled. Um, it was supposed to be last week. Then on the same day as the meeting, they were told that the meeting was canceled and, you know, that they had to cancel it. It's all very, like, complicated he said she said but basically that they had to cancel it because it was getting bigger and it would have to be bipartisan and he would come to the hill and have a meeting with people later in the week they had the meeting later in the week and they didn't invite a lot of the same people who were supposed to go to the first one and so 
it was kind of um, a lot of anger because they requested a meeting, were blown off, then were not invited to the, you know, what was sort of seemed to be a replacement meeting. Yeah, some were kicked out. Yeah, some of them showed up anyway, um, tried to go in or did go in and got kicked out. Who was the meeting with? The meeting was with um, members of Congress. It was uh, Republicans and Democrats. So you had um, people like Bob Goodlatte, who's the head of the Judiciary Committee. He's a Republican. Um, I'm, oh, man, you're putting me on the, the spot head of to ice. name names. The he- yeah. Oh, the yes. Head the head of ice. ice. And, and um, was, and the head of the DHS, ice. Uh, Kelly, was he there? He was not there. Okay. No. It was the head of ice. And I said later that they would be happy to meet with any members of Congress that, you know, that want to meet with him. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe they'll have a meeting in the future, but it, it was very strange. I could not mm. give an exact answer for why that happened. Well, that's, it, it seemed, seemed kind of intemperate and unnecessary. One last yeah. thing I wanted to ask, or do you have a question? All right. So one last thing I wanted to ask you about, um, is DACA. Yeah. Um, so a few days ago, uh, at his mostly zany press conference, uh, Donald Trump was asked, what would be the fate of the people who currently are in the country under the auspices of DACA? And I remember watching that part and feeling that that sort of like hard facade uh, that Trump has always sort of given toward the immigrant community kind of cracked a little bit. Uh, talked about, you know, that there's a lot of kids wrapped up in it and the kids were great and that it was rough. He uses the word rough a lot. And I got the sense that maybe it was something that he didn't really in his heart want to do. Um, And we've seen some delays from the administration on resolving that or or modifying the existing policy about DACA. Have you heard anything about what might go forth from what what we might see in the next few weeks? Have you heard anything about that? I'm really not sure. I mean, at the moment, they're sticking with it and they're still even taking applications for it. Um, I think I, I don't know what he feels in his heart of hearts. I think politically there is a case to be made for not getting rid of a program that protects people from deportation. Um, Dreamers, the young undocumented people, have like done a pretty incredible job over the past decade or so at making themselves – be considered by most Americans to be very sympathetic. Obviously, Trump echoes a lot of that language um, that they have kind of put forward for themselves um, in a way that that's smart. I'm not saying that none of it is true um, or that all of it isn't true about, you know, that through no fault of their own, et cetera. Um, I don't know. I think that there are probably Republicans who would like for him to just keep it so that they don't get the flack for getting rid of it. At the same time, there are a lot of Republicans who are pointing out that he made this promise constantly that he was going to get rid of it. He talked about it all the time that he was going to get rid of it. So um, I don't think he ever came face to face with the faces of the people. Uh, I don't think he really put like, you know, flesh and blood on the people. He met some of them in person. I mean, yeah, I I think that. um, I mean, when he's talking about getting rid of it, I think since then he's softened a lot. Sort of. Yeah. Rhetorically, he's given different answers. I I think. I don't know whether, you know, he he cares about them specifically or not. At the same time, um, I think you could theoretically not deport them and also end DACA. Um, He hasn't done that. uh, And so we'll see if he does. But it's interesting that he hasn't yet. It's been, you know, it's been a month. He said he'd do it on day one. 
Yeah, hasn't done tr- it yet. That's true. Interesting. It's it, it's just an it's just, it, I have this I have this feeling that maybe Donald Trump has this kind of like weird soft spot for kids, and that is giving him so much credit. I'm so- yeah, you know, I'm, I, if I didn't if I didn't if I didn't sincerely think that might be the case, I wouldn't say it. You know, I don't like most of these immigration policies, but you know, if I could keep DACA around, I would. That would just be my personal choice. And if it's politically difficult to do it, then great. Politically difficult, to, it should be politically difficult to do terrible things. Anyway, Elise, thanks for joining us once again. I'm feeling we'll have you back on probably all the time when he gets rid of DACA. <laughs> Coming Come soon, back. an entire just immigration fa- based podcast with Elise Foley. If you want that, just let us know, Arthur. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Arthur says bye. We say bye. We say we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by journalist and author James Polis, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jonathan Cohn, Arthur Delaney, Elise Foley, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, please subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.